Thank you so much for uh, the opportunity to come and to preach the word to you this morning. This is truly a, uh, a special blessing for me as, as I was singing those songs and even thinking about to my own conversion in high school. I remember visiting the, the Master's College uh, campus on a tour as a new believer and just getting to see this place and things didn't work out that I could come here, but just, it just reminded me a lot uh, when I come here thinking back to when I first got saved. And uh, just thankful for the Lord, how, how the Lord has worked in my life. I know many of you, and I've seen some of you this morning, always grateful for this school uh, and for the, the faithful work that they do in honoring Christ. Thankful to, to Harry and to Adam for the invite. This is a, uh, an incredible privilege to be here this morning, so thank you. And thank you to all of you students as well, as I learned that you have eight chapel skips. And I am personally grateful uh, that you did not use any one of them this very morning. Thank you. Even though you're like, I don't know who this guy is. He looks like he's 17. I'm, I'm grateful uh, that you're here. And look, I'm also grateful because I realize it's busy right now. You're four weeks into school, and some of you are four weeks late on your homework. And some of you are going through trials right now. About a month ago, there was something called Wow Week, and there were some romances that sprung up. And now you're reconsidering those romances. And hard discussions may need to be had in the days to come. So I'm, I'm grateful that you're here amidst your suffering as, uh, as well. So if you have your Bible this morning, you turn to Philippians chapter 2. And I would ask you, do you, any of you have that friend that's really into fitness or that's really into health? Guys, you've got that buddy that's always lifting and always wants to go to the gym, and he's got all these powders and milkshakes and pills. You wonder if there's something illegal going on in your dorm room or something. Or ladies, you've got that friend that knows the calorie count in every meal. You know, you realize that that's 500 calories. Well, do you realize I'm trying to live my life? You know what I mean? And they're, they're always wanting to let you know what's going on. Well, it's funny that we have that because our country, as you know, is obsessed with physical fitness. We love being in shape. This past year, around Christmas time, there were 2.5 million Fitbits sold. 2.5 million for Christmas alone so that people can look and see how many steps they've taken today. Some of you have already, you can look right on your wrist right now and see I've taken about, you know, 45 steps. I woke up at 8.45, I walked to chapel, and I sat down, and that's maybe as far as you went, but our e economy uh, is oftentimes driven by this, this love for fitness. 2012, $20 billion spent in the, in the weight loss industry. That's just on books, drugs, surgery. That's not even counting diet food. $20 billion on weight loss. And you always see these diet trends. You see Jenny Craig, the paleo diet, you know, superfoods. Last year it was kale. This year it's avocado. Uh, I had ice cream this week with bone marrow. I don't know what that is, but it's supposed to be healthy. Right? We, we have this obsession with what we eat. You know, some of you are all into paleo. Others gluten-free, grass-fed. We love physical fitness. But let me ask you, what if we were as obsessed with our spiritual fitness as we oftentimes are with our physical fitness? Because that seems to be the emphasis of Scripture. 
1 Timothy 4, verse 7 and 8. Paul, writing to Timothy, says, Have nothing to do with worldly fables, fit only for old women. And he says, On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise to the present life and also for the life to come. He, he says there's little benefit in physical fitness, but great benefit in spiritual fitness. Seeking out spiritual maturity. Well, this morning I want to look at our need to pursue spiritual maturity. Uh, to run hard after godliness. Uh, to bulk up in our personal holiness in Christ likeness and to understand to do, how to do that we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2 verses 12 and 13 and my title for the sermon this morning is called a, a workout that works a workout that works I titled that because when it comes to physical fitness folks there's much confusion all right there's a lot of questions which diet do I use you know do I go paleo diet do I go, go gluten-free what is a superfood I don't even know what that term means Oh, there's all these weird initials, no MSGs, right? no GMOs, no HMOs, no PPOs, anything like that. Okay, those last two are insurances, uh, so I, I made that up. That's, that's, that's something for your parents to worry about. You can worry about that later. But, you know, quite, do I eat chocolate? Well, you're not supposed to eat dark chocolate, or you're not supposed to eat chocolate, but dark chocolate's kind of good for you. I'm like, what do I do with that? Do I run on the sidewalk? Is that bad for my knees? How do we go there? A lot of, <laughs> lot of confusion about physical fitness. But friend, there is no confusion about spiritual fitness. The Bible is abundantly clear how you can grow in Christ-likeness and how you can grow in holiness. This is really good news. This is good news, and I hope this is encouraging for you this morning because, folks, isn't this what we want? Don't we want to reflect Christ more? Don't we want to live lives that worship the Savior and that reflect His grace in our life? Uh, my prayer is that this morning as we look at these two verses, uh, that you would be encouraged to do so and have clear direction on how you can grow in godliness. Uh, let's read our passage again, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. It says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work, for His good pleasure. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for this morning. Thank You for just that undistracted time to worship You, to sing of Your grace, and to praise You for the finished work accomplished at the cross. There is no fear now in coming to You because you have crushed our sin, you have trampled it underfoot and thrown it into the sea. Lord, we desire to be holy. We desire to be holy as you have made us holy. Help us this morning. May you receive all the glory for the preaching of your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. A little background on the Philippian church. We won't go too far into this, but it's helpful just to remember this church and what's good to notice when you read through the book of Philippians is overall this seems like a, a pretty healthy church that uh, was founded by Paul in Acts 16 and as you read through this letter the tone is 
very encouraging. Uh, he's not harsh like he is with the Galatians. This isn't a letter of condemnation like 1 Corinthians. No worry about doctrinal purity like with Colossians. Uh, no, Paul is encouraged by these people. He says in chapter 1, verse 3, that he thanks God in all his remembrance of them with joy. In chapter 1, verse 5, he considers them as partners in the ministry of the gospel. He repeats the same phrase in chapter 4. Uh, this is a church that Paul is, is close, close with and is dear to his heart. He has a close relationship with them and they with him as well. Uh, even the nature of this letter seems to imply that they are concerned for Paul as he is in prison writing this and he wants to encourage them. They're even concerned uh, for Epaphrodites, one of Paul's ministry partners. And right there in verse 12, you see right at the beginning, he says, So then, my beloved the ones whom I love. This is a, a, a solid church, a church who Paul loves, and I would ask you, what do you say to a church that's walking in godliness? What do you say to a group of believers who love the Lord, who seem to be walking in holiness, seems like they got good doctrine, how do you continue to exhort them? You know, Paul tells them in chapter 127, he wants them to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, that they seem to be doing that to a degree, right? Even there in chapter 12, he says, obey uh, that you've already been doing, right? Uh, just as you have always obeyed. What do you say? Well, we're going to see that Paul, the command that he gives to them here is to continue in that walk. This is a command to grow, to not settle in and get comfortable, but to pursue godliness. And as we look at this this morning, you will see how you should grow as well. This morning I want to discuss four. Four aspects of spiritual growth. Or four factors of spiritual maturity. Four components, you could even say, to your sanctification. And as we look at these four elements of our growth and godliness, my prayer is that you'd be encouraged to grow as well. Let's look at these four. Number one. Uh, point number one this morning, I want to talk about your effort in spiritual growth. Your effort in spiritual growth. Take a look again at verse 12. It says, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. And here's the command. Work out your salvation. Work out Paul's telling the Philippians to work out. What does this mean? This would mean what we kind of have the idea of what working out does mean. The idea of labor, energy, production, action. There, there is to be effort in working out your salvation. Something with your salvation should produce a zeal and productivity. You're supposed to do something. This word here, work out, as we try to figure this out, it's helpful to recognize that often it's, it's used in producing something. When this word is used, something is produced. Let me help you with this. In 2 Corinthians 4, it says, for this, for this momentary light affliction is producing an eternal weight of glory. There's affliction that is working out, producing a weight of glory. Something is brought about. Romans 4.15 says, For the law brings about wrath. And so this word working out, there, there's something that's, there's fruit, there's evidence, there's effort, and there's a product. Uh, 
And this word is an intense word. It's not being used lightly. It's intense effort here. So what is Paul saying? You know, often people might look at this and say, is this Paul commanding us to work for our salvation? Is this a command to earn our salvation? And as you know, and as we already sang, the answer to that is a resounding no. That would make no sense to think that Paul here is telling us to work for our salvation. In fact, that wouldn't even make sense based on chapter 3. I mean, if you look ahead to chapter 3, this is where Paul says, if anyone could have worked for their salvation, it was me. Starting in verse 4, he says, I myself might have, have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. And Paul gives his credentials of how he could have earned his salvation. Even Romans 3.20, it says, For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now, I bring this up this morning. I realize I'm, I'm talking to a well-taught group, and yet surely in a group this size, I wonder if some of you even here this morning are putting your trust of your standing with Christ in your good works. That while you know the right doctrine and you've gone to all the right things and you know the right things to say at the right time, why should you stand before God? And how you answer that question is vitally important to your eternity. And I would ask you, is your standing before God based on your good deeds or based, as we just sang, trusting completely in the blood of Christ to pay for our sins. Galatians 2.21, if righteousness came through the law, then Christ died in vain, but because He died, we can be saved. And all our trust, all our righteousness is in Him. And so that is, that is not what Paul is saying. He's not saying here to earn your salvation. So what does he mean? What does work out mean? Here's what Paul is saying. You who are saved, you who have shown the fruit of righteousness, excel still more. Keep growing. Don't be content with your current level of personal holiness. Don't be satisfied with, with your practical godliness right now, but continue to demonstrate your obedience. Labor to increase in your righteous behavior. In short, grow in godliness. This is His command to them. And as we've seen by that word, work out, this is not a casual pursuit. I mean, Paul is telling them, put your back into it. In workout terms, work up a sweat and trying to grow in holiness. Make it something that you're putting all sorts of effort into, not just casually going about it. You see, the Christian life is not one where we get saved and then put it in neutral. All right, We have our eternity secured and then just kind of relax until we die. No, Paul here is reminding them that until the moment we go to glory, you and I have a responsibility with all our might to pursue holiness to pursue active obedience. It's actually a theme that we see in the rest of Scripture. 2 Peter 1.5, Peter says, for this very reason also, for the reason of what you've been given in Christ, apply all diligence in your faith. Supply moral excellence. Pursue godliness. And in fact, this is Paul's heart. Look at chapter 3, verse 12. One chapter ahead, he, after talking about who he is in Christ and, and, and how Christ is everything to him, he says, not that I've already obtained it or I've already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. 
This is normal Christianity, folks. This is what our lives are supposed to be about. And if you want to grow, if you want to beat the sin in your life, if you want to put to death those wicked patterns that you see, then it's going to require effort. There's labor involved. Your salvation did not come by effort, but your sanctification requires your effort. Now here's the good news. Scripture is filled with examples of how we should work. All right? We're not left to guess on how we should put to death sin. We're not left to guess how we should grow in salvation. It's filled with, with examples. It tells us to wage war with sin in Matthew 5, 29 and 30. Right? If your right hand causes you to stumble, you cut it off. Eye causes you to stumble, you pluck it out. Uh, Paul tells Timothy to flee youthful lust. So there's a sense we want to grow, we put sin to death. We also discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. 1 Timothy 4, 7. You could read Colossians chapter 3, uh, verses 5 through 17, and see all about how we put off sin and we put on righteousness. There's plenty of examples. I mean, consider even the other means of grace God has given us. He gives you the word by which to grow. All right, we, we know that the word grows us. John 17, 17, sanctify them in thy truth. Psalm 119, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping according to your word. We're even given other people. Right? I mean, this is the beauty of why God invented the local church, right? So that we could have other people involved in our lives, not just to talk with and fellowship, but to hold us accountable and help us grow and stir us on to further godliness. I mean, even the singing we did this morning, where we... Lift Christ up in our hearts helps grow us. That's what 2 Corinthians 3 says. It's we're transformed as we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And as we set our affections and our attention on Christ, there's a sense where it helps with our sanctification. There's many different means, many different steps we can grow in holiness. But make no mistake, knowing these won't do anything unless you put in the effort, unless you're actively pursuing holiness. Can I ask you this morning, how are you doing? How are you doing with obedience? How are you doing with godliness? And when I say you, I don't mean y'all. I don't mean the person sitting in your aisle who you are thinking right now, yeah, if they would only get a little more serious. I mean, how are you doing? with pursuing obedience. Are you in the fight against sin? Are you waging war, trying to put the flesh to death? Or have you let your guard down? Are there pet sins you've allowed to, to creep up that you kind of like, and though you know they're bad, you're not really trying to put them to death. You've just accepted them. Or consider, friends, small sins. Small sins, impure or selfish thoughts, sins of the mouth. Consider apathy or thanklessness or impatience. You see, so often we feel like certain sins have just become a part of us and we stop fighting. But Paul says to work out. Work out, and he tells us how we should work out. Point number two, we see your attitude in spiritual growth because he says there in verse 12, work out your salvation 
with fear and trembling. Work out with fear and trembling. Now, it's best to combine these two words. This is an expression. I don't want to talk to you about fear and then trembling. It's, it's a sense of fear. We get this idea. What does this phrase mean? Well, on the one hand, it has the idea of respect, reverence, sobriety, seriousness. But on the other hand, it can mean terror, horror, genuine fear. So what does he mean by fear and trembling? Well, I would tell you that it's somewhere in the middle. That we are supposed to have an awe and a reverence for God and be blown away and feel small and uh, you know, we don't go flippantly into His presence. And yet there's also supposed to be a, a hint of terror when we consider who He is in light of our sin that causes us to walk in obedience. I think of it in the way that I, you, know, you maybe think of lightning. When you see lightning and you're outside and you're going, wow, that's really, really amazing and I need to make sure I'm protected from that at the same time. There's awe and then there's a fear as well. Let me show you this. If you have your Bible, save your spot in Philippians 3. Go to, go to Exodus chapter 20 because uh, I want to look at this relationship between fearing God and holiness. I think it's good, by the way, Proverbs 1.7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's I fear God, and therefore I live wisely. But Exodus chapter 20, and let me give you a little bit of background. Exodus, the, the people have been delivered from Egypt. And in chapter 19, God brings them to Mount Sinai, and He tells them, you're going to be My people. I didn't just deliver you to deliver you, I deliver you to be Mine. And now you belong to Me, I want you to walk in my ways. And in Exodus chapter 20, uh, the Ten Commandments have been delivered. And look at verse 18. This is after the giving of the Ten Commandments. It said, All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning, flashes and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. And then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen. But let not God speak to us or we will die. You see, what had happened here is this is a terrifying scene. We already see in verse 18, there's the thunder, the lightning flashes, smoke is rising as the people are hearing the voice of God give the law. Now could you imagine standing there with God giving the law in all His holiness, Him not just being the giver of the law, but the perfect embodiment of the law, how are you going to respond in light of your own sin? Terrifying. I mean, these people saw what God did to the Egyptians. What makes them think that He will not do the same to them? And so they say, Moses, don't, why don't you just talk to us? God can talk to you, and we'll play telephone, and you talk to us, and, and all will be okay. Look at Moses' response. He says, Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, in order that the fear of Him may remain with you so that you may not sin. God wants you to fear Him so that it drives you to not sin. A big picture of who God is, 
a beautiful picture of His holiness, a terrifying picture of His holiness, causes us to walk in obedience. We need a picture like this. We need to see God like this in order to obey rightly. But friend, we don't need an Old Testament picture of God to blow us away, to walk in obedience. We have one in the New Testament. In fact, we have one right there in Philippians chapter 2. Turn back to Philippians chapter 2. And keep in mind that Philippians chapter 2 verse 12 comes after Philippians chapter 2, particularly verses 5 through 11, where we see the picture of our Savior, God incarnate, who came uh, to, to live on this earth. And just to, just to highlight it, I won't read the whole thing, but you see who Christ is. I mean, we see Christ as Savior in verse 5. Have this attitude in, Christ, uh, in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who although He existed in the form of God, He did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I mean, this, the context here of fear and trembling is Christ as Savior. Uh, we get to see him as the one who paid for our sins, as the, as the Lamb of God who died the death we should have died. And yet, the picture of God is also the picture of him as Lord picture of Christ as Lord. Look, for this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The context is not just Christ's humiliation, but his glorification, that he has been exalted, that he reigns, that God has made him the center of worship. And that every knee will bow as He judges. This picture of Christ as Savior and King, as Lion and Lamb, should drive us to awe and to exhilaration and to terror that ultimately drives us to holiness. You know, I know that your theme this this semester is Christ as all. And you've heard some amazing sermons uh, about the person of Christ and, and who He is. Let me just say this. Your Christology, your view of Christ, if it's accurate, should result in sanctification. Christology without becoming more like Christ is worthless. It's absolutely worthless if you come in and learn all about how Christ is all and you're not becoming more like Him. Because seeing Him should drive us to more holiness. Have this attitude, fear and trembling. You know, I think it's hard to fully understand what this means to live life with fear and trembling. But I'll tell you what it's not. It's not flippancy. It's not a cavalier, casual, nonchalant pursuit of holiness. Earlier we were talking about working out and 
You know, maybe many of you have been to the gym, and if you go to the gym, you notice there's different types of people at the gym. All right, you've got the, I call the, the grunter. You know, he's, he's making noise on every rep so everyone can hear him. Uh, you know, you've got the sweaty guy that forgot the towel. That's me. You take some of me home with you if you use the machine after, that kind of thing. But then you have the guy that I call the cell phone guy. And that's the guy that does a rep, and then he's looking at his phone. And he does a rep 15 minutes later, and he's looking at his phone. And you know what's funny about that guy is often that guy has a t-shirt with the logo of the gym. You probably ask that guy about lifting, he'll tell you all sorts of techniques. But he's not doing anything. He's, he, there's no intensity about him. He's just kind of walking about the gym, lifting here and there, and hoping he gets bigger. Does that describe your sanctification? You know a lot about Christ, a lot about how you can grow, but there's no seriousness. There's never any sobriety. You know, often even in a group like this where you have everyone who's a Christian, sin could be something that instead of you mourn at, you actually laugh at. And you just, well, hey, this is great. We're believers so we can get away with stuff. Are you broken over your sin? Is it causing you to labor in your holiness? Work out your salvation and do so with fear and trembling. The text goes on. Point number, let's look at verse 13. It says, for, why? Why should we work out our salvation? For it is God who is at work in you. Point number three, God's effort in spiritual growth. So we've talked about your effort in spiritual growth. We've talked about your attitude in spiritual growth. And now we look at God's effort in spiritual growth. It says, for, God, for it is God who is at work in you. God is at work in you. This is a similar word to verse 12. You work because God is at work in you. God is at work in the life of a believer. Changing us. Making us holy. Here's, here's what Paul is saying. You need to labor because God is laboring. Now, some of you might be a little confused if you look at this, because you're looking at this going, wait a second, Josh, you just said, I need to work. Now you're telling me that God works. Which one is it? And the answer is easy. Yes. Yes. You need to work because God is working. Both of them are true. And by the way, this is all over Scripture, where there's two seemingly contradictory truths that are both the same all at once. Right? Was Jesus 100% God or 100% man? Yes. Uh, does God choose or is man responsible to turn to Christ? Yes. And again, are you working or is God at work? Yes. Both are true. Scripture's clear. We are to work, but there's good news this morning. We don't work alone. God is at work in us. That's what Jesus tells His disciples in John 15. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Both are participants. Our effort and God's power. Colossians 3 says the same thing, verse 9 and 10. We lay aside our sin because we are being conformed by the Spirit. This, by the way, friends, was God's plan. Do you realize that? When God saved you, His plan was to not just forgive your penalty of sin, 
but to slowly over time mature you so that the presence of sin diminishes in your life. Romans 8.29 talks about how he will ultimately do this in eternity. For for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to what? To become conformed to the image of his Son. I mean, God's plan for you is that you would become more like Christ in your behavior, in your thoughts. Jesus even prayed this when he said, Father, sanctify them in thy truth. Thy word is truth. So, friend, God is at work in you. He's trying to change you. He is actively trying to grow you by the Spirit. Trying to put to death that sin. Can I ask you a question? You don't have to answer, but think about this. Is God powerful? Is God powerful? And we would say, yes. Right? How powerful? Well, He created the world. He flooded the earth. He demonstrated His power in the plagues. He split the Red Sea. He fed Israel with bread from on high. He threw stones on the Canaanites. He controls the sun. He brought about the virgin birth. He raised Christ from the dead. And when you were saved, you were given a new heart. That's God's power. Do you realize that that same world-creating, earth-flooding, Christ-resurrecting power is the same power available to you in your fight against sin. It's the same power at work in putting to death the old man and putting on the new man. Oh, this is great news. This is great motivation. I mean, even as you come in here this morning, some of you maybe put your head down or wanted to sit near the back because that sin came up again. That sin came up again. Whether in your personal holiness, whether in your relationships with others, there's those plaguing sins that we can't seem to shake. And yet God tells us He's helping us put them to death. He's at work in us as we grow. And it gets better. It gets better. Because look, it even talks specifically about where. It says both to will and to work. Right there, that's explaining where He's at work in our lives. He's at work in our will and in our work. I'll do the second one first. Our work, that means our effort. He's actually growing us in our ability to obey in the way that we're able to represent Him, in the way that we manifest the fruit of the Spirit. If in the last year you've grown in holiness, it's because God has been growing you. But not just our work. Like I said, He's growing us in our will. You know what that's talking about? That's talking about our affections. You see, God's not content just to change your ability to obey. He's changing your desire to obey as well. The reason why you want to obey more now than you did six months ago, two years ago, is because of His grace in your life. You see, all growth is due to God. All of it is His grace that He continues to shower you with. Even as I consider this passage, I'm blown away by God's grace. I mean, think about what you and I bring to salvation. Think about this. We're only saved because God chose us. 
You know, we'll get to heaven because God has promised to glorify us. If we stay faithful to Him along the way, it's because it, He's keeping us. And as you mature in the middle, all of that goes to God. What do you and I bring to the table? He, he gets all the credit, all the glory, all the praise. He's growing us. He's growing you in your lack of boldness, in your selfishness, in your pride, in your sharp tongue with your lust. He's helping you put sin to death. And this is good news. But before I move to the final point, there's a reality that should cause us to reflect here. You see, if you and I are growing, who gets the credit? God gets the credit, right? I mean, if I'm growing, it's clearly because God is at work in me. But if I'm not growing, is it because my sin is too powerful for God? Or is it because I'm not working out my salvation? And maybe if I look at my life and I see a pattern over months and months, maybe the reason I'm not growing is because His power might not be in me at all. This is an encouraging text, but it should be a sobering text as well. It should cause us to reflect when we think about the truth of God and sanctification. Work out your salvation because He is at work in you. God will not live our Christian life for us, but we cannot live our Christian life without Him. Which takes us to our final point. Our final point. Point number four, and this will be brief, but it's, it's my favorite part of this text. God's attitude in spiritual growth. We've seen your effort, your attitude, God's effort. Now let's talk about God's attitude. In verse 13, for He is at work in you, both to will and to work, for His good pleasure. If God is growing you, it's because it is His plan. It is His delight. It is His good will to bring it about. He grows us because it is His delight. I played freshman football when I was in high school, like every socially awkward freshman did, and I remember I, I missed a block right before halftime. We could talk about whose fault it was later, but uh, coach comes in at halftime. It's me and all my, you know, all my friends. There's like 80 of us sitting there. And he goes, we'd be winning this game right now if it wasn't for you, Petrus. You know, which as a socially insecure freshman, as many of you can identify with at the collegiate level, uh, th this, was a, this was a humbling thing. You're like, oh, Thanks. Coach, you know, four weeks in, I just got to, none of these guys are going to be my friend, right? I got the blame. We're down by six. Come on, we got this. Two more quarters, right? He's just frustrated. And, and some of you who play sports, maybe you have a coach who's like that, who's always on you. Whenever you mess up, he's dogging you. He's intense. And whenever you do good, you're like looking for applause, and he's, his arms are just folded. You're like, well, that's, you know, that's how it's supposed to be. You're like, oh, man, I was so hoping to get something there. Maybe that's how you view God in sanctification, you blow it again, and he's furious. You do things right, and he's just like, well, about time you figured it out. You know what this passage teaches us? It teaches us that God is not like that football coach. God loves growing us. It is God's delight to grow us. 
to change us. He takes great pleasure in conforming the redeemed to the image of His Son. It's His joy to do so. He is not a reluctant sanctifier. He is not a frustrated sanctifier, thinking if you would just get your act together, I wouldn't have to work as hard. But it is His joy to turn you into vessels that greater glorify His grace. This is great news. When you go to God in prayer, when you go to God with that sin again, when you say, God, I, last time I said I'm not going to do this again, I'm sorry, can you help me out with this? He doesn't go, again? Again? Rather, He says, again, I will give you grace. I will help you grow. And I will continue to show you mercy as you can rely on My Spirit in growth. This is amazing grace. That God delights in growing us. Student, God is at work in us. He delights and empowers our sanctification. Let us work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Let me pray. Father, thank You for this morning. Thank You for this time that we had. God, You hate sin. You hate sin seriously enough that You had Your Son die on the cross to pay for our sin. And while nothing can now separate us from the love of God, our sin still hurts You. Our sin grieves You. God, help us to be grieved by our own sin. Help us to hate the sin that Christ paid for on the cross. And yet, Lord, help us to work out our salvation. Thank You that You are at work in us. And that You will help us to defeat the sin that You've already paid for. And that You do so with delight. We're so grateful for Your love for us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.